Welcome to episode five of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, a podcast series hosted by me, Alex Thompson of Eastern Approaches, and I'm joined as ever by Mike Robinson, editor of UK Column News, and David Scott of Northern Exposure. This episode is the second half of our treatment of democracy and the problems with that rather vague term that we're not supposed to disagree with. Last episode was entitled Democracy, colon, the books, and went into largely continental thinking on the theoretical issues with the concept of democracy, going back to ancient Greece, in fact. This time, we're going to be closer to home in time and space, and we're going to be talking about modern British experience of the term democracy and the ways in which it can be abused. By way of introduction, especially for foreign listeners, I would point out that according to Ofsted, an agency that inspects schools around the United Kingdom, there are fundamental British values and all educational institutions down to primary schools and I believe now preschools have to inculcate these values and to be seen to be doing so when the inspectors come around. According to Ofsted, fundamental British values, a term, by the way, that was not in vogue in the civil service as recently as the mid-2000s when I was in it, are democracy, the rule of law, which, by the way, is the subject of our next episode, episode six, individual liberty and mutual respect for and tolerance of those with different faiths and beliefs and for those without faith. Hopping across to the Home Office, Britain's Interior Ministry, and dating from the same period, the mid-2000s, when the Home Office suddenly came up with a counter-terrorism strategy called PREVENT that was news to us in the intelligence agencies at the time, the Home Office came up with this. Fundamental British values reflect life in modern Britain. These values are democracy, the rule of law, respect and tolerance, and individual liberty. That particular write-up of the fundamental British values was by an agency supplying services as dictated by the Home Office, an agency called Total People. But gentlemen, you get the idea that democracy is top of the list as of about 2007. Suddenly, it's what being British is all about. Is there any historic basis for that notion? I, I think the clue is in, in that last quote you read out there, that this is the, the values of modern Britain. This is not the values of traditional Britain. This is not the values of historic Britain. The, these, these are ideas uh, with, a, with a pretty shallow root system uh, and, and are quite recent. I would also say that the, I, the, the concept of there being an approved set of, of, of British values that everyone must be inculcated uh, into and, and pay lip service to is, is perhaps the most un-British thing I've ever heard. As you say, Ofsted is the regulator for the education system in the UK. This isn't directly democracy-related as such, but but one of the major exam boards, which, which uh, Ofsted regulates, publishes uh, a general studies book for A-levels and AS-levels. Uh, they have a section on the British Constitution. Um, Magna Carta is not mentioned. Common law is not mentioned. Uh, it's all statutory stuff. It starts with the Bill of Rights. It talks about habeas corpus. It talks about uh, uh, representation of the People Acts. And it talks about the Act of Settlement. And it talks about the Parliament Act of 1911. And then it starts talking about regionalization and uh, devolution. So our children are very much being taught some kind of modern values, which are not based on the 1200 years of constitutional values that have been built up 
in this country. And indeed, Charles Walker, one of the dissident uh, or at least disgruntled backbench Conservative members of parliament, so uh, a member of the governing party at the moment, speaking about this interminable lockdown and denial of civil liberties, said in parliament just recently, we're recording this in March 2021, that he was uh, shocked and appalled by, not his exact words, but that was the tenor of his speech, by how Parliament itself, more specifically the House of Commons, which now claims supremacy in effect, uh, had denied the British people their civil liberties. And uh, this speech was being shared around dissidents such as UK column viewers. But a very perspicacious viewer replied to me when I sent that clip around saying, it worries me, Alex, when none of them, that is the uh, unhappy members of Parliament, mention our constitutional right to petition the Crown. Now, that might sound arcane to some people, but what the viewer was hinting at is that even the unhappy members of Parliament are suggesting that the solution must always be within the House of Commons, that there is no check or balance upon that. Parliament is utterly sovereign, as we've been told since the late 19th century, and we can't in any case go to the Queen and say this is out of order. Uh, but that is not, of course, the historic position, is it? Uh, well, no. And, and in fact, within our uh, memory, uh, Alex, uh, petitioning the Crown has been done. So it was 2001, if you remember, four, uh, four barons representing a barons committee took a petition to the Queen in an attempt to, to block a closer integration with Europe. Uh, closer integration with the EU, rather. So they were uh, invoking Article 61. The problem with, with these types of initiatives is that if they're not pursued to their ultimate goal, if they're not, you know, if people give up at some point because they've run up against a brick wall, then unfortunately that tends to set a precedent. Um, and in this case, they didn't, uh, or at least they took it up to a point, but they didn't take it uh, any further than that point. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there is, you know, that's within the last, since the turn of the century, there has been an effort by uh, some of the barons to to invoke our common law constitution. And indeed, what we're uh, finding out from this is that it's the Metropolitan Police, the police for London, who often block such attempts to serve writs or petitions on the Crown, both at Buckingham Palace and, as I've personally witnessed, at Downing Street. Uh, the police have been instructed not to let uh, so-called protesters or petitioners pass, even when what they're serving is a constitutional writ or uh, a grievance on the Queen. So we do have a modern stitch-up here preventing the workings of what Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights are supposed to safeguard. Yeah, Alex, I don't want to take us off the uh, the, the thread that we've got here for this programme, can, but can I just briefly ask you and David for comment on this? Uh, because one of, the, one of the precepts which is sold to us about modern British democracy is that the monarch doesn't play any role in politics or doesn't take a political position or doesn't play any role in, in the governance of the country. But for a petition to the monarch to work, of course, the monarch has to be willing to take that role. So, so I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that. David? Yes. My thoughts are that uh, post-war and uh, post the death of her father, the current queen has, uh, has decided to keep the crown in, in being nominally, but essentially, essentially we're no longer a functional monarchy in any real way. And this abdication of power and responsibility and duty to the people has been quite fundamental. Um, I can speculate as to why it was done and I can I can have sympathy as to why it was done because the country was changing 
and she may well have felt that she had no choice. But um, it has certainly been a, a laying down of her duty, and there is a giant hole in her constitution where the monarchy should be, and just isn't. I think one of the sharpest viewers that we have has pointed out that in correspondence with the constitutional people at the House of Lords, and these days also the Justice Ministry, which dates from the same era, 2007, as this British values nonsense, it has come out that the uh, monarch has not granted royal assent to laws, which is in fact being political, it's saying this is a law worth having, uh, since the very early Victorian era. And in latter times, that has, it has just been a case of certain of the members of the House of Lords, known as the Queen's cousins or friends, who turn up and say in Norman French, la reine le vote, the Queen wants it. But this is not actually the royal assent that we require to have a proper meeting of Crown, Lords and Commons, is it? Because that the whole point of Parliament is that these three estates of the realm, uh, who are in fact the executive, the judiciary and the legislature, agree equally on their own equal and separate footing that what is being proposed is lawful. So, yes, the, the sovereign cannot but be a political person. Otherwise, we cannot hold her to her oath. Uh, that's absolutely right. And, and of course, uh, the, the monarch is supposed to be the final arbiter of um, what uh, represents um, the laws and customs, the historic position of, of the country. The, the, whoever inhabits that office is supposed to have uh, proper training in what that means. What has gone wrong, of course, is uh, a pernicious spreading of the ideas of ultimately the French Revolution, the uh, the wrong revolution of the late 18th century compared with the, perhaps the right one being the American Revolution. And from the French Revolution onwards, spreading through the continent and then more latterly to Britain, is this idea that there are key values in France itself, the home of revolution in that regard. They are known as les valeurs républicaines, the values of the republic. And they are, of course, liberté, égalité, fraternité. But French critics have started noting that La République forcing its values on people through laws and through pseudo laws is effectively a denial of there being any specific French people or customs or historic French experience of how to deal with problems. And that is what's now spreading with this idea of British values, capital B, capital V, uh, effectively being totally decoupled from history or from the identity of the people uh, and their experience who inhabit our islands. And in the same period, we've seen the rise uh, of democracy with a capital D as the key value, which uh, we must not upset. It's the paragon. And to that end, David has come up with three later 20th century uh, quotations from books that wrestle with this uh, issue. In fact, spanning a bit more than the latter half of the 20th century in chronological order, before I let David take us through them, the first is 1942, C.S. Lewis in The Screwtape Letters, uh, a book between demons uh, or a book of correspondence between demons as to how to tempt uh, mankind. And then from 1978, uh, Lord Hailsham, whose own name was Quintin Hogg, wrote a book named The Dilemma of Democracy. And most latterly, a book we, which we mentioned last time in 2016, Richard Legutko, uh, a Pole, ha, has written The Demon in Democracy, colon, Totalitarian Temptations in Free Societies. David, over to you to uh, introduce us in the best order you think fit to uh, what it is that these books say about the problems even defining democracy. Well, we'll, we'll take them in reverse order. Uh, Legutko uh, is a Pole. He's writing about his experience of 
uh, coming out of a totalitarian communist regime and coming into the Western liberal democracy, uh, only to find similarities uh, between the two, only to find limitations in, in liberal democracy and the fact that it didn't live up to its billing and to see parallels and, and shadows of the sort of totalitarian regime he'd grown up amongst and dominated by uh, in liberal democracy. And and this has got a historical um, aspect to uh, the, the examines in some detail. So I've got a little quote from the historical and uh, analytical section of the book. He writes, uh, liberal democracy uh, does not have and never had an official concept of history that can be attributed to a particular author. It does not have its Marx, Lenin, or Lukacs. Uh, nevertheless, from the very beginning, the liberals and the democrats made use of a typical historical pattern by which they were easily recognised and which often appeared not only in the variety of general opinions they formulated, but also, on a less abstract level, in the popular beliefs and stereotypes professed to be a representation of liberal thinking in mass circulation. According to this view, the history of the world, in, in the case of liberalism, was a history of the struggle for freedom against enemies who were different at different uh, stages of history, but who perpetually fought against the idea of freedom itself, and in the case of democracy, the history of a people's continuing struggle for power against forces that kept them submissive for centuries. Both of these political currents, liberal and democratic, had therefore one enemy, a widely understood tyranny, which in the long history of humanity assumed a variety of additional distinctive costumes. Every now and then it was a monarchy, often the church, and at other times an oligarchy. The main enemy of freedom was portrayed in various ways, in different countries and different traditions. As John Stuart Mill wrote in the passage opening his essay on liberty, quote, the struggle between liberty and authority is the most conspicuous feature of history since the earliest times known to us, end quote. In England, at some point, there emerged a Whig concept of history that was to portray the country's basic dramatic political history. According to this view, the history of British civilization was a progressing expansion of freedom and its legal safeguards and the disappearance into the past of bad practices of autocracy and, or arbitrary authority beyond the control of the people in Parliament. More specifically, the history of England could be presented and has been done many times as a narrative of the emergence of Parliament and the creation of a constitutional monarchy with a particular legal system sanctioning it. But the Whig view of history of Great Britain deserves a broader look. There are also authors who treated it as a basic libertarian model of development. If one was going to introduce the idea of freedom to Western civilization, uh, then, as he claimed, the most clearly expressed representation of the idea of freedom at its most mature and most rooted in law, institutions and customs, and in the freedom mechanisms themselves, was revealed in the history of England. Such were the feelings of numerous Anglophiles, from the Enlightenment thinkers to Friedrich von Hayek. So what's the key point out of that, David? Uh, the Whig view of history, uh, much derided now, I think, uh, perhaps with some justification, is that uh, we were tending towards greater and greater liberty and there was no possible threat to our liberty from here on because we had gained experience and put down one tyrant after another. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. Uh, and the problem perhaps is, is seen in one moment when in 1997, Blair's year zero is voted in by a majority, 
although not an absolute majority, but a, a constituency by constituency majority. And what do we see as the new Labour Party uh, celebrates its uh, trouncing victory? We see Tony Blair's sidekick, uh, John Prescott, corpulently dancing away to the strains of things can only get better. Is that, in essence, what Legutko is criticising in the Whig view of history? Well, this is exactly right. So the, the view, which is, for, for example, contrary to other views, contrary to the biblical worldview, which is towards the end, there is a great falling away and a great loss of civilization and a great coarsening of humanity. This view, the Whig view of history, is that things can only get better, that it's a constant upward spiral. And it, it's also, and this is where the totalitarianism comes in, it takes the view that every other system is inferior, Every other system is an enemy and an enemy to be crushed in the name of goodness. So this, this creates a, a, a concept, a, a worldview that's inherently dominating of any other worldview that may present itself. And indeed, the uh, history, historian of the key era in Parliament gaining supremacy, the 1760s-ish, or the latter half of the 18th century, Sir Louis Namier, kind of wryly warns of this when he points out in Conflict Studies in Contemporary History, quote, the individual rights of the freeborn Englishman, which of course is the weak view of history again, have retained their place in the political code of the nation. But in time, and he's talking about a thousand years here, Namia says, in time they have come to be considered sufficiently secure not to require constant jealous watching. That's the nub of it, isn't it? Yes, you're free because you're in a democratic system. Therefore, if you feel unfree in a democratic system, the fault is yours because the system is perfect. Does this take us then to the second of your quotable quotes? Yes, this, this is from the introduction to uh, Lord Hailsham's book, The Dilemma of Democracy. For those who don't know, of course, Lord Hailsham was Lord High Chancellor in the Thatcher government and was regarded as uh, you know, the most sensible lawman of the era in which I grew up. So he, t he writes about the, the difficulty he has in, in, in starting his book. He writes, the difficulty was that at first I hardly knew how to formulate what I wished to say. In part, I wished to establish a political philosophy. In part, I wished to produce a programme of constitution and political change. As I wrote, it gradually became clear to me what was in my mind. Our troubles derive from the fact that we are halting between two inconsistent opinions about the nature of democracy indeed about the nature and function of government. And between the two, we are unable to make up our minds. Both opinions claim to be democratic. Both assert they are libertarian. Both claim to rest upon the interests of the people, yet each is wholly inconsistent with the other. The politics of the next 25 years may well depend upon the encounter between the two, and uh, more will depend on the outcome than the future of the British Isles. The two theories are the theory of centralised democracy, known to me as elective dictatorship, and the theory of limited government, in my language, the doctrine of freedom under law. Between the two theories, there can ultimately be no compromise. Both may depend upon universal adult suffrage, but one will assert the right of a bare majority in a single chamber assembly, possibly elected in first-past-the-post basis, to assert its will over the whole people, whatever that will may be. In the end, it will be a rigid economic plan, and I believe in a siege economy, a curbed and subservient judiciary, and a regulated press. It will impose uniformity in the whole nation in the interests of what it claims to be social justice. It will insist on equality. 
It will distrust all forms of eccentricity and distinction. It will crush local autonomy. It will dictate the structure, form and content of education. It may tolerate, but will certainly do its best either to corrupt or destroy religion. It will depend greatly on caucuses or cadres to accept its will. Some will be directly appointed by patronage, as in the increasing number of quangles. Others will be elected by a tiny majority of dedicated activists and apparatniks, relying on the apathy of the rest as a passport to office. This is already happening in some unions and local authorities. It uh, will worship material values, but not succeed in producing material plenty. When its policies fail, it will rely strongly on class div divisiveness or scapegoats to distract attention from its failures. That was written in the year of my birth, David. I'm only in early middle age now, but Quintin Hogg, or Viscount Hailsham, has in fact prophesied the entire course of Britain in my first four decades there. It is staggering how far down that road we have already gone. And the only thing that you might say wasn't quite correct was the suggestion that, that the division would be along class lines, when in fact the division is on every possible line that exists. Identitarianism, which we've gone into. And of course, Lord Hailsham didn't just warn in his book. He also warned the masses in a press piece of the 19th of July, 1970, and he distilled what he was just warning there of in his book, The Dilemma of Democracy, into this quotation. It is the parliamentary majority that has the potential for tyranny. The thing that the courts cannot protect you against is parliament, the traditional protector of our liberties. But parliament is constantly making mistakes and could in theory become the most oppressive instrument in the world, end quote. Of course, the theory of parliamentary sovereignty is that it's impossible for parliament to make mistakes because it's the will of the majority. But of course, majorities sh shift over space and time quite quickly and are very easily manipulated. That's true, Alex. The parliament has to be the parliament that was originally designed. What we've got is, as he is hinting at, we've now got this, what's effectively a unicameral situation where the, the monarch, is, as we've already mentioned, isn't playing a role. The House of Lords is hamstrung because it's packed with, uh, with vested interests and party people. And we now have this drive to reform the House of Lords and turn it into a second House of Commons, which is whipped as the House of Commons would be. Parliament has, rather than having a, a strong separation of powers and many checks and balances, has turned into this single object of dictatorship. And indeed, are there 650 or 651 members equally making up that single object? or just a handful called the cabinet? Or is it even the case that an entity outside parliament that we're not able to see very well is controlling that single object of tyranny? If you come to uh, Scotland, which is slightly more tyrannical than, than the rest of the UK, as an example of where we're going, and the nature of parliamentary tyranny, uh, we have a parliament. We have a parliament which, which um, distributes a great deal of cash because... It's, it's now 50% more or less of the economy is directed through government. Um, so that means that advertising in the press is uh, predominantly via the government. So the press is neutered. Uh, I was uh, travelling the other day, put on an independent radio, a commercial radio channel, and some adverts came on. There was a, a series of six adverts. Five of them were government funded. They are not going to say anything against the government. 
We've got a, a judiciary that seems to be heavily politically compromised and appointed by that same government. We have a Crown Office that's actively uh, threatening parliamentarians if they speak out of line, uh, so much so that under, under Lord James Wolfe, it's now called the Wolfe Pack. And we have a police that uh, even the Scottish Police Authority, former head, admitted was politicised. So everything is now pushing down. Every charity, or almost every charity, is so heavily state-funded that they also pursue the government line. So when you say it's a majority will of the people, uh, you have to say under what circumstances was that majority will engineered and how free are the people in making their choice. So we have a problem of definition, which your third quotation, David, will illustrate. Just before you read that, an elaboration on Lord Hailsham's warnings in both the book and the press quote that I just read is written by none other than Richard Crossman, uh, a man of very mixed record, in fact, in politics, but at least he got this right in writing an introduction to Walter Bajho's The English Constitution, originally published in 1867. Uh, Crossman said, a political system resting on professional party politicians is clearly fatal to all liberty and national well-being. It represents a total destruction of our historic parliamentary constitution, behind whose forms, institutions and ceremonies, it, the political machine, has disguised itself whilst at the same time rendering them meaningless. The full meaning of parliamentary supremacy is now lost to us by the constitutional corruptions which the professional politician has fomented by their appeals to an alien and fraudulent political ideology. Hint, he's talking about French revolutionary spirit. By clearly identifying and correcting these corruptions, concludes Richard Crossman, we can recover the enduring qualities of strength and freedom of our parliamentary constitution, for which generations of Englishmen have for centuries been ready to sacrifice their lives and their possessions. Now, just I, I would note in passing, who would be willing to sacrifice their lives for the current cabinet of government in the United Kingdom? That rather puts a point on it. it indeed. And actually, it's one of the explanations as to the rise of Scottish nationalism, because it's a void. Um, who could who could believe who could all all loyalty and and defend passionately uh, the current uh, system we have in Westminster? But onto your C.S. Lewis quotation because that gives us a little bit more of what's going on with the word democracy. Now this is yes, so this is from the Screw Tape Letters, and and for those who have not read it, it's uh, a series of letters written. Um, the subtitle is "A View of Our World from the Dark Depths of Hell." So the letters are written by a, a senior and experienced demon to young demons learning their trade, and it and explains to them how to corrupt uh, human beings and how to corrupt humanity. And the final chapter of this is the graduation ceremony, the speech that the senior demon gives, uh, and he gets onto the subject of democracy as falls. He, he says... Democracy is a word with which you must lead them by the nose. The good work which our philological experts have already done in the corruption of human language makes it unnecessary to warn you that they should never be allowed to give this word a clear and definable meaning. They won't. It will never occur to them that democracy is properly the name of a political system, even as a system of voting, and that this only has the most remote and tenuous connection with what you're trying to sell them. Nor, of course, must they ever be allowed to raise Aristotle's question about whether democratic behaviour means behaviour that democracies like or behaviour that will preserve a democracy. For if they did, they could hardly fail to occur to them that these need not be the same. You are to use the word purely as an incantation, if you like, purely for its selling power. 
It is a name they venerate, and of course it is connected with a political idea that men should be treated equally. You can uh, make a stealthy transition in their minds from this political ideal to the factual belief that all men are equal, especially the man you're working on. As a result, you can use the word democracy to sanction in his thought the most degrading and also the least enjoyable of all human feelings. You can get him to practice, not only without shame, but with a positive glow of self-approval, conduct which, if undefended by the magic word, would be universally derided. The feeling, I mean, is of course that which prompts a man to say, I am as good as you. The first and most obvious advantage is that you thus induce him to enthrone at the centre of his life a good, solid, resounding lie. I don't mean merely that this statement is false. In fact, that he's no more equal to anyone he meets in kindness, honesty, and good sense than in height or waist measurement. I mean that he does not believe it himself. No man who says, I'm as good as you, believes it. He would not say it if he did. The St. Bernard never says to the toy dog, nor the scholar to the dunce, nor the employable to the bum, nor the pretty woman to the plain. The claim to equality outside the strictly political field, is made only by those who feel themselves to be in some way inferior. What it expresses is precisely the itching, smarting, writhing awareness of an inferiority which the patient refuses to accept, and therefore resents, yes, and therefore resents every kind of superiority in others, denigrates it, wishes its annihilation. Presently, he suspects every mere difference of being a claim to superiority. No one must be different from himself in voice, clothes, manners, recreations, choice of food. Uh, he is someone who speaks English rather more clearly and euphoniously than I. It must be a vile, upstage, la-di-da affectation. He is a fellow who says he doesn't like hot dogs. He thinks himself too good for them, no doubt. He is a man who has turned on the jukebox. He must be one of those highbrows and is doing it to show off. If they're the right sort of chaps, they would be like me. They have no business being different. It's undemocratic. So in a word, David, it is glorified envy or pseudo-justified envy if you don't qualify the word democracy with an adjective. And all three of your authors have in their different ways said, we have a problem because democracy isn't an undifferentiated mass. It, is refer it refers to a system and we must define the workings of that system. Hailsham got a little close by saying that there were two kinds of democracy and one of them he calls an elective dictatorship or a tyranny of the majority. Uh, an author we're about to get onto in the second half of this podcast, Ben Green, gives proper labels to these two. He calls them legal democracy or democracy under law versus parliamentary democracy or the tyranny of the majority, which he also calls parliamentary supremacy, although it usually likes to call itself parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, also, I would note that uh, in dealing with the former Eastern Bloc as an intelligence officer and dealing with the foreign office people in the 2000s, I was very aware that the analysts in the West were trying to nudge post-Soviet systems, both the former Soviet republics and the former satellites of the Soviet Union, from a presidential democracy, which is where the president says, the law won't let parliament get away with this, I won't sign off on it, I'll withhold the presidential version of royal assent, towards parliamentary democracy, which according to the Western European dominated and US dominated uh, agencies and international organizations is a more democratic and better kind of democracy than presidential democracy. Parliamentary democracy is the summit of the system. Uh, but before we pick apart parliamentary democracy, just in passing again, uh, this is not the only way to slice the cake 
there is also the question of who gets to vote in a democracy. Do we all, through referenda, or do representatives on our behalf, representative democracy, a chamber of dep deputies, a congress, a parliament, a house of commons, or do we pick people at random? The posh name for that is aleatory democracy, from the Latin word alia, throwing the dice, picking people at random. Or do we have a nice, warm, fuzzy system where we all get a say in our little identitarian categories, uh, fronted, of course, by government-sponsored uh, non-governmental organisations? Uh, this, of course, is uh, participatory democracy. Uh, and a viewer and listener with experience of Switzerland asked this question. He said, are you going to discuss aleatory democracy in a future episode? Episode four, he continues, was devoted to representative democracy rather than democracy per se. And to my mind, says the listener, representative democracy is no more a democracy than the former communist people's democracies were democracies. Members of the House of Commons or the Bundestag may be representatives of sectors of the economy or of discrete groups, but not of their voters as a whole. And he goes on to recommend the Swiss model. We do, with respect, have a problem to uh, our listeners who are asking us things along these lines. Another listener here says uh, in a response to, to the previous episode, if I'm lucky enough to have a child, I'll encourage them to join a party, any party, at a young age. If all UK column members got involved this way, you probably have enough already to swing enough seats to bring in a new government. Mike, what is our question mark about this approach of stuff the parties or indeed the approach of let's stop MPs dominating us with their representative democracy and insist that all parts of society get their say in a new constitutional convention. Because you've been warning about the problems with that noble sounding idea for several years on UK Column News. Uh, well, uh, the warning is really about how we are moving towards this model of participatory democracy, but it's a particular style of participatory democracy referenda are problematic because as we saw with Brexit, I would imagine it was the same to some degree with uh, with the Scottish referendum and so on, the independence referendum. With a controlled media, the narrative on both sides of the argument is utterly controlled. And that means that people have a limited amount of information upon which to base their decisions. But more recently, we're, we're seeing the term stakeholder appear. Uh, we're seeing that in the as the second stage of the Great Reset, because uh, Klaus Schwab has just published his new book all about stakeholder capitalism. Um, and so the, the form of participatory democracy, which is being encouraged at this point in time, is one in which stakeholders get the opportunity to participate. The rest of us don't. So it is not even uh, a referendum style of, of participatory democracy that's on offer here. It's that we have a much broader set of representatives, uh, not just members of parliament, but uh, also uh, people that are involved with think tanks, NGOs, charities, foundation-funded organizations, and so on. Um, and we're expected to consider them to be the experts. And we put into the hands of the experts the decision-making authority. And this uh, is being sold to people as, as a step up for democracy, when in fact, what it does is permit uh, an even tighter control of the, the narratives and the outcomes. So you've got taxpayer-funded professors and think tank policy wonks uh, being invited in spontaneously, in inverted commas, or by consent, in inverted commas, uh, by the uh, the members of the um, representative plebs association, as it were, the uh, the random picked members of the of the panel, uh, to brief them on the expert view. 
But of course, that expert view has from the outset been trammeled towards an outcome acceptable to the multi-trillion spending uh, international and national uh, bodies, such as the World Health Organization uh, and the like, which have already decided which way to go. This this is a, an example of corruption and patronage in a way that would, that would shame any traditional monarchy or empire or, or anything else held to be an example of corrupt uh, rule. The, the degree to which the entire intellectual class are bought by a, a, a state which has taken to itself the ability to create money and that controls the banking system and controls taxation income. So it has a great deal of money to dispense. And it will dispense this and, and you will get promotion and you will get salaried positions and you will get authority if you speak the words that you're told to speak, and only under those circumstances. Try uh, getting government funding to oppose the global warming scam. Try getting support or space to speak. If you oppose any aspect of the narrative, it is impossible. Everything is paid for. Everybody who's consulted has an interest in agreeing, and the power is very softly and gently permeated through the whole of society and it becomes much more totalitarian than the communist regime which at least in part could be seen for what it was there was still there an attempt to control how people think to make uh, supporting a, a more free society um, unthinkable and and or laughable or seen as an act of betrayal the the, the power of the communist idea to in, in, in to control the minds of men seemed to be much less than the power of the democratic corrupt society to control their minds and their wallets. Well, of course, the Soviets didn't have these stakeholder groups because they eschewed capitalism, didn't they? And I have here uh, a 1979 English edition by Progress Publishers of Moscow of a book first published in Russian. The Russian original, 1976, was called Sovietskaya Demokratia v Period Razvitova Socialisma, which literally means taking Soviet democracy into the period of developed socialism. But when it was published in 1979 in English, it was simply entitled Soviet Democracy in the period of developed socialism. And on pages 174 and 175, uh, the English edition talks in detail about the thoroughgoing admixture of representative democracy, people in parliament or the deputy of the uh, Soviets, uh, and the participatory democracy, which is the workers' Soviets, the workers' councils, uh, having a direct democratic say on all the decisions that affect them. And just as you said, David, their minds uh, had been framed or they had been socially cajoled in advance not to enunciate certain views. So the authors say here uh, that people's volitional actions, their will, may occasionally correspond with objective necessity, but in most cases it's impossible to guarantee such achievement. Consequently, freedom does not consist in any dreamt of independence from natural laws, that is, of course, as stated by the state-funded scientist uh, organisations, but it consists in the knowledge of these laws and in the possibility that this gives of systematically making them work toward definite ends. The point is that practical activity designed to master the forces of nature and society implies conscious control of one's own forces, 
For this reason, freedom is understood by Marxism-Leninism not only in the sense of man's domination over his natural environment, but also as control of ourselves and our inclinations, our actions and our behaviour. Consequently, to master the spontaneous forces of nature and society, men must not only cognize, which is a version of the word recognize or be cognizant of, the laws that govern the objective development of the material world, but must subject the movement of their own forces to the purposeful utilization of these laws in their own interests. In our view, a definition of freedom ought to include three elements, cognition of necessity, action in conformity with cognized necessity and action in the interests of society. And this comes, as I say, in a chapter which talks about how completely mixed together, deliberately so, representative and participatory democracy are in the Soviet model. So you can see the mind tricks that are going on there, can't you? And indeed, this predates communism because the first of the nihilist revolutionary movements that sprang up in the late 19th century in Russia was a party which gave itself the name Narodnaya Volya, the people's will. So to claim the right to speak in the will of the people was the beginning of anarchism, actually, in Russia. It wasn't the first uh, attempt to rectify the abuses of Tsarist absolutism, but it was an attempt to de derail the entire projects. Now, as I thought might happen, we have filled an entire three quarters of an hour in the prelude to the pamphlet that we were going to discuss as the meat of this episode. So that's going to be a separate episode released around the same time as this one. And it's going to cover Ben Green with an E on the end and his writings of the 1970s on the British Constitution and the corruption of Parliament. Now, both of you have read this pamphlet uh, consisting of five articles put together recently by candor.org.uk and available from them as a pamphlet. Uh, what were your thoughts on it generally? Well, I, I was very struck by it, uh, the, 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 the regularly that he, he brings to the analysis. And some of the quotes, um, th there's one here, he quotes uh, Sir Lewis Namie, a historian, and, uh, who writes, at the root of English democracy lies the right of every man to life, liber liberty and property. And this is getting down to what the, the, the history of our country actually is, what the beliefs and heritage of our people actually are. And then when you consider those words, you think, okay, life, liberty and property. Well, property is long gone. The middle class is being extinguished. Uh, taxation and soon-to-be inflation will, will, will do the rest. Liberty, uh, we know only too well in the year of covid or the first year of COVID, perhaps we should say, um, is has gone almost entirely. And we also know that life is increasingly under attack, the elderly and the unborn being the most obvious examples. So th these principles are have fallen. And without them, what is democracy? Well, just to wrap that up, I will read just the chapter heading and subheadings of chapter 15 of perhaps the only academic book in the English-speaking world that even dared to ask this question in the post-war environment, which is Social Principles and the Democratic State, written by S.I. Ben and R.S. Peters, and published in 1959, very much from the social democratic academic tradition. They entitled chapter 15 of their book, Democracy, and this book has, I think, deliberately not been made as widely available as it ought to have been. Section one of that chapter is entitled The Meaning of Democracy and talks about whether democracy should be 
prescriptive in force or have descriptive criteria. So do we force people to have democracy or do we see it arising from them? Democracy as, quote, the sovereignty of the people, which they put in scare quotes because they think that's no good anymore. People aren't sovereign. Democracy as, quote, majority rule, another pair of scare, scare quotes. Democracy as the rule of groups, or one could say mobs. They're obviously pointing out by simply naming these subheadings that there are problems with each. The second part of their chapter is, can democracy exist? Question marks. And the third part of the chapter is the moral justification of democracy, which they split into the Jacobin or French revolutionary view of democracy, the natural right theory of democracy, which is God-given inalienable rights, and various modern versions, democracy and the criteria of morality, and the democratic rights of anti-democratic people. So they conclude that there is a major problem with the concept of democracy, but notably they conclude that in less than a single page at the very end of the book. It's a kind of sneaking admission by the framers of post-war English-speaking or entire Western world uh, political life that there is a gap big gaping hole in the middle, which, if you join us for the next episode, we will start to pick apart using Ben Green as our guide. <laughs>